Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Josh Nightingale, to the Prying Priest Podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. Yeah, good to be back is is true. So (laughs) our keen listeners will say, wait, where's the previous Josh Nightingale episode? And the answer is, it is in the warehouse where they have the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones. Your previous recording has been hidden away. No, what what happened was we recorded, I think, back in March. Yeah. Um, The season one wasn't supposed to end with Richard Reeves. It was supposed to end with Josh Nightingale. Um, And then I just decided to end season one. And then I was looking to kick off season two. And of course, Josh, you know that I went back to go re-listen to it and we had recorded over Zoom, and unfortunately, there was lots of um, audio was cut out and things like that. So I thought, let's just re-record one fresh for season two. So here we are, and hopefully, it'll be twice, tw- <laughs> twice the podcast that the previous one was. I know it was a pretty good one. Uh, yeah, it felt weird. I was like pretty content with what we did there, and now it feels like I'm just going to do worse. Now I can only go <laughs> down from. <laughs> but you know what? No one has ever heard it. No one has ever heard it. Or ever will. It's a deep, dark secret. Um, I well, there. I remember talking about a couple of things. One of the things. Well, first of all, we always start with how do you? How do we know each other? So maybe we could start there. Yeah, Josh. You know, fresh to the Prying Priest podcast. What? What? How do you know me? I know you through a mutual friend, Justin Coop, who um, we were studying together at Columbia Bible College in British Columbia in Abbotsford. And you came to visit him. And that was our first like interaction with each other. But I don't think it was very much then even. And it wasn't until yeah. I moved here to Winnipeg that uh, we started connecting more. Right. And you moved to Winnipeg to, to go to school at Canadian Mennonite University. Yes. Yeah. To get my master's. Um, right. Which you successfully, which I did. I successfully, successfully did. got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now you are, if are, are you still the pastor at uh, exchange? Yes. Yeah. This could have been a little bit awkward. No, I, I'm, <laughs> I've been the pastor um, of exchange community church in downtown Winnipeg for three years now, I think. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't know Winnipeg and don't know exchange community church, it's, um, it's like right in the middle of the exchange and, I think you interact a lot with just the people that the the people that come in off the street and things like that. And yeah. 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 It's a church for a lot of people who have been like hurt by the church in the past. And yeah. uh, it's a space where they feel uh, safe and they can investigate whatever feelings they have about it. And some people uh, go keep going on their way and some people stick yeah. around for a while. And Yeah. I so I grew up in a in the Orthodox Church. I grew up in kind of a formal Christian church that, mm-hmm. that sort of knew I exi- it existed and knew who the bad guys were. You know, knew who the heretics were, knew who the Orthodox were, and um, and I found because I had 
interactions with the exchange community church, not necessarily as a church, but as a venue, right? Because my improv group would rent the space to perform in. And so, but, but I interacted with one of the previous pastors. I had, I had been there when he was actually like helping people that had come in off the street and things like mm-hmm. that. So I, I had kind of seen the space. I saw some of the decorations. I, I knew some other people that were involved and I knew the kinds of worship or the, you know, the things like that. And, um, to be, you know, to be honest, I was sort of like, yeah, this kind of, this is this quote unquote church, right? <laughs> um, because it definitely was an Orthodox. Like it definitely wasn't like a kind of a, a church for Christians, right? And, and I think a lot of times when you think about churches, we think that they sort of, I don't know, like a church for Christians. I, I don't even know what I mean by that, but there's, you know, or, orthodoxy for me was this place where I could like, exp- well, you mentioned the Exchange Community Church. You know, there's people that come there that have been broken by church. Mm-hmm. So how can you be church for people that are broken by church? And maybe this is a really good place to go with this conversation is like what um, the shortcomings or the, the, what are the things that the more strongly institutionalized churches can't do for people, right? Uh, Maybe that's one thing we could talk about. We don't have to talk about that right now, but that's just a, a fascinating thing because, you know, I do see a lot of people that are hurt by church and having a place like that, I think is very good and yeah. Anyways, I'm just thinking out loud here. Um, what else did we talk about? We talked about, oh, we talked about, I remember this. Okay. You had, you had said, uh, in previous conversations we've had, you've often asked me, you know, what TV shows are you watching? Mm-hmm. Right. And I always found that striking because I think often we'll ask things like, oh, what books are you reading? Right. And we want to maybe, be perceived as more higher class or things like that, right? Oh, yes, I'm reading Tolstoy. Um, <laughs> but you're you're just kind of like, well, what TV shows are you watching? And and, and I think you you have this um, this ability to know that what we consume kind of um, says a little bit about who we are and how we experience life and and the the art that we uh, intake. So I don't know. I I've always liked that about you asking questions like that but what are you watching nowadays josh um i've been i don't i feel bad uh talking about this show this way so i've been watching through superstore which is like a comedy has so many five seasons for what it like and it is just funny enough to like keep watching like for it to (laughs) exist and not much more like every episode feels like a pilot episode mm-hmm. and like uh yeah it's kind of not great but it's just good enough yeah. but what's fascinating about it is so it takes place like they want to talk about labor issues all the time in it um like unionizing and how awful like these like superstores are and stuff like that and it's really hard to tell like how much of this is like sincere and how much of it is like tongue in cheek or like pessimistic that like we joke about it because it'll never change. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and that's cool. That a show like this was on NBC for five years or I don't know where it was, but for five years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you yeah. watching? Oh yeah. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm now I, me and my wife are rewatching parks and rec. Yeah. Which is kind of the same ilk of superstore. I think. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen that that show, so 
I don't know. Is it similar? Workplace comedy, for sure. But Parks and Rec is really special uh, to me, I think, and to a lot of people. Like, it, it does what it does so well. And uh, the way that it builds its relationships and characters' relationships with each other, I think, is really, like, sweet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this this is a show about exploring faith and exploring people. So... Let's explore a little bit about, about your faith there, Josh. Sure. So you're clear. You're a pastor, so you're clearly uh, people have an image in their head of who you are already. Yeah. Um, but let's get into your story a little bit. I know that you come from a family of missionaries. Is that right? Yeah, and like a long line of them. There's like a lot of like. So my dad's a missionary kid. His dad was like a missionary, and his dad's dad was a traveling preacher in in Russia and stuff and and when they came over to Canada and so a long history of like deep in the Mennonite uh, world um, and so I was born in Brazil because my parents were like serving overseas with uh, what was then called MBMSI or MB Mission and it might have a different name now actually mm-hmm. but yeah and then being a missionary kid like obviously you grew up in that like were your what was the nationality i guess or the heritage that your parents had because you're kind of traveling around but you i I think you speak portuguese is that right because you spent time in brazil yep yep i speak portuguese but you're not brazilian i have brazilian citizenship oh you are brazilian i was born there uh (laughs) see i didn't we did not cover that last time (laughs) well i'm learning about you yeah i have triple triple citizenship and what are the countries? Uh, America, Canada, and Brazil. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then your parents were... Well, I mean, can you speak a little bit about the Mennonite-ism that your parents reared you in? Like, what, what did that entail to be a Mennonite missionary in terms of lifestyle and belief? Mm-hmm. It meant... Um, And this isn't even true for all Mennonites, but my dad did take like pacifism very seriously. Mm. Um, And so very early on, I remember getting into like arguments with kids at school with other missionary kids. This is kind of dumb arguments we went into of like um, of the tenets of like if pacifism is possible and stuff like that. And I was, we were all like, so uninformed on everything, but thought we knew uh, so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And it meant uh, just values of like hospitality and making sure that anyone was invited to like share meals and space with us. And, you know, the, there's the stereotypes of like, um, like um what's the word i'm looking for like the preferred term would be like simplicity or like minimalism or whatever but cheap that's it people people (laughs) think Mennonites are cheap um and so stuff like that like but but it's never Mm -hmm. the food like because my mom wasn't like didn't grow up mennonite like she's from oregon idaho area Mm -hmm. um and so uh the the for us like because now that i've lived in places like abbotsford and winnipeg i see that there's a lot of like what it means to be a cultural mennonite but that was never what it was for us like it it was very much like um attempts to bring me up in like an anabaptist like worldview yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 
you were always somebody when I interacted with you. So, I mean, you moved to Winnipeg and we started hanging out. You would come to a group that I had formed called, called Beerology, which was an interdenominational Christian discussion group. And, um, and I'm not sure how many you actually came to. But I only went to the one. <laughs> the one famous... <laughs> The one famous one that we've mentioned. Um, yeah, anyways. Um, you were always somebody that when you spoke, you made me re- really reconsider how I had thought about things previously. Um, and I remember one time we were, we were eating brunch in Perkins restaurant, me, you, and Justin Coop. And... I had made some sort of claim against some kind of Protestant Christianity worship style, something about saying how it's just so emotionally driven. Right. And, um, or like that's argument comes from emotion or whatever. And then later on in the conversation, I had made some sort of claim about, you know, all the, all the fathers of the church who through their blood had kept, you know, the faith. And you were like, you're just, you're doing exactly that emotional thing calling, you know? And I was like, Oh, I had not realized that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, tell me if I'm right, if this is how you think about yourself. But I think that, you know, you having been somebody who's traveled and been in kind of a couple of different Christian contexts, you've been able to interact with Christians of various kinds and people of various faiths of various kinds, mm-hmm. which has helped you maybe have a bit more of a holistic picture of what faith is. So when you then you interacted with somebody like me who's maybe had a bit of a thinner um, uh, perspective, you were able to sort of point out some things that I had not been able to see in myself. Is that a fair characterization of how you feel about your faith journey? Yeah, um, and in different seasons, different things. Like I definitely used to be much more contrarian than I am now, and just uh, did enjoy like poking at people Mm -hmm. and prodding and uh you can't do like now that i'm a pastor that like that that a rough edge has been worn down on me i think um but uh but nonetheless my intention in in so many of my conversations is i realized long ago that i will never have the power to change people's minds um and that's and that shouldn't be my goal and so my goal has become much more about just like um making sure that we understand, like complexifying a conversation, making sure that we understand that it's multifaceted and that, um, and that there's different viewpoints, different experiences and perspectives that belong to something. Um, and the easiest way to do that so often is just to show like how, how we do the same things that other people do. <laughs> and we just like project our like distrust and disinterest in it onto others. Um, and I myself do this, but probably uh, am so unaware of it. <laughs> well, like I remember having a conversation with somebody. I think it was probably an Orthodox person, and this is an example of my inner Josh coming out. But uh, they were saying something like, "Oh, these mega churches have like smoke machines and laser lights and everything, like our light shows or whatever." And I go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Like you know, you're Orthodox, right?" Like we have our candles, which set the mood through lighting, and we have incense, which are old smoke machines to set the, <laughs> the to set OG, the mood. <laughs> OG smoke machines, there. It's an OG litur- liturgy, right there. Um, but like, 
we, I mean, I think that might be an example of my inner Josh coming out of saying, yeah, hey, yeah. we do the same things. Exactly. Right. I think, you know, I, I think what would set, I, I think the reason why I'm in the Orthodox church and say not in a mega church is because I think that there's something more, I, for, for my own personal experience, a bit more grounded in that Orthodox sure. understand, yeah, understanding yeah. of what's going on. But um, I remember having a conversation with a pastor from Springs Church in Winnipeg, and he said, um, uh, he, it was in an Orthodox church, and he was like, oh, it's so like symbolic and everything and the architecture. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I think your church has is symbolic as well. He goes, no, 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 we're, we, we, we've designed it to look like a, a mall, so there's no exactly. symbolism there. <laughs> Right. And I, and I, and I want to clarify, like, I don't mean at all to like just devolve into what about ism of like, well, we all like in different ways participate in the same problems or in the same th- ideas or emotions. And so then, uh, you know, it's all the same, like whatever, whatever. Uh, but instead, like the point is to like, just crack through into that empathy um mm. and not not that all things are the same or that like you know it's equivocal but just to crack into the empathy of like oh this is like where we're all coming to about this and then it, we can just have a more honest conversation right yeah, yeah yeah you had mentioned that you've come to a place where you realize it's not your job to change people's minds but you also come from a missionary family and i think the stereotypical <laughs> image the stereotypical image of the missionary is somebody who goes somewhere else to change people's minds right like that's sort of the purpose that's the whole point of missionaries like mm-hmm. i think ge- generally in people's minds um you know you think of jehovah's witnesses going door to door like literally their point is to change your mind so how do you square that? You know, is that something, do you, do you see that you've departed from that missionary family inheritance that you have, or do you see it more as a, maybe a fulfillment or just a recasting of what does it mean to, to be mission minded? Um, I think it could be various strains of each of those. I have definitely like weird feelings now, like leaving a missionary context now, having uh, learned so much more about like, uh, like post-colonialism and stuff like that. Like, uh, um, and so it's extra strange now that uh, our church is part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Because mm. that's and, the denomination that that yeah. exchange community church belongs to. Yeah. Um, and so um, where they're, they have a huge emphasis on that. And so we have very uh, interesting conversations about that. Um, and I think at its best... Um, you know, if, if we want to be like, like gracious and stuff like mission, the, the, the evangelical like missions activity that we all partake in is like standing as that like promise, that image of what God is doing in the world and intends to do in the eschaton. Right. And so even then it's not like we're going to change anyone's minds. It is the revelation of Christ, uh, brought about through, through, the Holy Spirit, uh, like, and, and energized in us, worked out in us because it needs that flesh. But, um, definitely not because I like thought of the right retort in the shower, you know, like, Mm. um, that, that's not whatever, what's ever going to change someone's mind. Like what, what brings about transformation is, uh, the gaze of Christ. Um, and, and, and so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And hmm, 
And also when I realized I couldn't, so I really, I don't know if people come to you for advice a lot in your role as, as a priest or, or because you may, maybe you became a priest because people often, people would always come to me for advice. And I realized very early on that like, no one, no one follows advice. And I think that was like a major, like, okay, what's more important is that I'm an like empathetic listener and that they get to hear like themselves and maybe come to new realizations on their own. Right. Like whatever decisions people make, it's through like a weird refraction of the other person. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's where I was going to take the next question was, you know, in the context of being a pastor, number one, people will come to you and ask for advice, right? Like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but people also will sit and listen to a sermon, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. So, so how, how do you square, um, it's not my job to change people's minds with the fact that you're literally going to stand in front of a group of people and try and, <laughs> I, what, what else is a sermon, but trying i mean well i do hope to bring people the tools to be able to bring uh their attentiveness into like sharpened focus in their lives right Mm -hmm. to be able to better see what's going on around them and in the bible and and in themselves like i think all that can be brought into uh focus and into the forefront by a sermon Mm -hmm. um and and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It's been like, I've been having like a mini existential crisis, um, like about how I can preach and I'm, I feel like I'm very deliberate and thoughtful with my words in a sermon and people will take whatever they want from, from that sermon. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this happened like yep. you, in my very first sermon, uh, I, I preached and a woman came up to me and was like, you know, uh, in the days since my husband died, it's been so hard. And your sermon told me exactly what I needed and then proceeded to say the exact opposite of what my sermon <laughs> was about. And it's like, well, you just dropped that. It's like your husband. Di- I can't even like, ar- I can't, I don't know what to do <laughs> actually, <right> now. <laughs> well, actually, exactly. Like, um, and so, and that's just coming up more now and, and, uh, yeah, and and it's hard. I don't know. I just have to trust that, like, I'm do. I, I don't know. Like, so so many of my sermons, I start with the prayer of like, God, uh, give me good words that make you happy. And uh, yeah, I don't know what what gets done after that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what more can you say? Like, <laughs> th- I mean, it is it th- that is very funny because I mean, I I did a lot of improv theater Mm -hmm. and and that's one of the things we learned about in one of the one of my formational most formational workshops was that um the the audience will fill it in Mm -hmm. right like the audience they are story creating creatures so you don't you don't actually have to do a lot like you can put you can put this i'm talking in the context of improv but Mm -hmm. i think this applies to preaching you can put a couple of dots down and they will connect the dots into whatever image that they kind of want want to make and in an improv context, that's amazing because it's really freeing because you know you actually don't have to you don't have to take them by the hand and walk them through. You can just suggest or you can just do something that you don't even know. Like one example I remember, I probably mentioned this on the podcast, was um, uh, two people had went, got, went into a scene and I went in as well, but I was behind them and they didn't see and they started the scene. <laughs> and then it was like too awkward for me 
to just join as a third character, but I couldn't, I couldn't leave either because that's an improv no-no because I had established myself. You're describing my social life right now. But um, so then I started, that's, that's really funny. Um, I started, I'm, I'm imagining like a little Josh sort of half behind a bush. Hi, hi guys. Um, I read that book too. Um, <laughs> Um, and so I started doing the physical motions of one of the characters, but in a more exaggerated way. That's it. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just mm -hmm. doing something. The scene ends, the show goes on after the show, someone comes up and goes like, Oh, that was really cool. Like great performance. That was really cool. What you did actually, when you were playing out their inner demons, <laughs> and I was like, thank you for getting that. <laughs> Um, I had not intended that at all, but but in the con I can understand that sort of existential crisis when you're like when you put a lot of care and attention into what you say and you preach it, but then you don't know what they're what people mm -hmm. are going to do with it, yeah, right. And, and it's a huge just leap of faith, or or it's a it's a it's a, it's it's an act of trust almost. Mm -hmm. And like, and to think of like people walking away from my sermon and telling, cause I know like, cause people have reported back to like, cause you know, it's church, yeah. but like people walking away and then like talking about my sermon saying like, oh yeah, pastor Josh said this. And then like, I just preached on James three about the tongue being a wildfire. And so like, <laughs> it's just like, oh gosh. Anyway. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, that is uh that's a big one. Um, can we talk a little bit about the role of narrative mm -hmm. in, in faith? Um, so obviously I had mentioned before your love of asking me what I'm watching and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but how do you see, maybe let's start with Exchange Community Church. Are there any, this is kind of a conceptual question, but are there any ways in which you consciously try and bring in i'm going to be super broad with this and you do whatever you want with it where you consciously bring in narrative into like the life of the community hmm i can answer this in a few different ways first i'll say that like every new year's um like we will go over the history of the church as we've inherited it and stuff and like or like coming into and we'll have like in, in the changes of each seasons we'll have times of reflection and discussion where people can talk about their previous season and their hopes and fears for the next season and i think that is a way of narrativizing like our lives that is very valuable um and then in the second way like yeah there there's been sundays where i don't preach i read like a a jd salinger like story or something like that like i've read uh like horror stories in my service, like in my services mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And and then just like didn't like tie it up with a neat little bow afterwards and say like, this is what it was about. Um, and just let it like hang there and like talked with people afterwards about it and had discussion about it and stuff. Yeah. In your opinion, is there anybody is Christianity for everybody? I think that Christianity could have contributions to anyone's life. Mm -hmm. I was super broad with that question. And it kind of came out. It kind of came out of nowhere. So, um, so to to get more specific with that question, is it is the exchange? Oh boy. Okay. 
So is the Exchange Community Church for anybody? Um, I mean, we welcome anyone, uh, but a lot of people just feel uncomfortable there. A lot of people want to, they're used to like a particular way a, a service should go. You come in, you sing songs together, you listen to the sermon and you leave. Maybe shake a few hands before and afterward. But because of the constellation of people that we get and the fact that like often we don't have like congregational singing we'll have like poetry being read or an artist showing their paintings or stuff like that or like just like meditation um and then sometimes i won't have a sermon i'll have a guided like lectio divina and stuff like that um means that uh i don't a lot of people it's not like the quote-unquote church experience they're looking for um Mm-hmm. And so if if we're talking in those terms, like, mm-hmm. I, if, and if the numbers of my church uh, does say anything, it's that it's not for, any, for <laughs> everybody. <laughs> what? You don't have like a 3,000 person <laughs> Sunday morning service? Uh, no. You just got to preach that prosperity gospel. Well, okay. So I don't know if you've been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church podcast. No, but I've, I've been uh, told Holy to listen. I, I did just finish reading Blessed by, okay. uh, I forget her name, but she wrote uh, a book on the the prosperity gospel, the American prosperity okay. gospel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just finished listening to that. But go on with this podcast because oh, I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, it was just like as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, is this what I need to do to just like, if I wanted numbers, if I want to like make it happen, is are these the like things I need to do? Like be more authoritative and be more like controversial and, and stuff like that. And like, I saw a f- like, and, and also the idea that like, anyway, I don't want to get too much into it, mm-hmm. but uh, just that it, it's been crazy. Like everyone in my like circles has also been listening to this podcast and being able to like talk through it and like really reflect on this period of life for a lot of us, like me, like in my teen, late teens, early twenties, being on the West coast at like oh, peak yeah. Mark Driscoll, like was hu- hugely influential around me. And so it's been really cathartic uh, listening mm-hmm. through it. And for listeners, like it's, it's really great. Um, Can you give like a 30 second thing about, this podcast slash Mark Driscoll for the listeners who have no clue what we're talking about. Uh, so it's Christianity Today is putting on this podcast and it's a very like balanced and in some people too much of a softball uh, historical journalist take on uh, how the church uh, in Seattle, Mars Hill Church that was uh, started and led by Mark Driscoll, how it came to be, how it exploded and how it what its demise was. And like all the different like uh, really awful things done by Mark Driscoll and other people and and stuff like that. And but I think an important like caveat is like it doesn't do any like theological investigation of claims being made. It's purely like reporting. It's it's these are the events. Here are the testimonies of people from these situations. Yeah. Who in your life has been perhaps the most influential person for your spirituality for your faith. Do you mean like real person I've encountered or yes. book person? Let's, <laughs> okay. do, let, let's do real person <laughs> okay. you've encountered.
It's a hard thing to to be completely honest. The way that I've like moved around so much, it's not like I've had like consistent like mentor relationships. But there've always been professors, uh, like at each place I've studied, that just like the way that they will um, think through something, uh, the thoughtfulness that they'll give uh, ideas and and the way they want to think about things um, has always like been uh, made a huge impression on me, especially when like it ties into people's lives. Cause I think we've all seen the professors that are like, it's very clear that this is like their day job that, uh, and maybe because they like couldn't get into somewhere bigger, they're like stuck here at whatever school and they're just going to teach their curriculum type thing. Uh, and then there's the professors who are like, really like trying to uh, have like a practiced lived in theology. And I even lived with one of them when I was in Abbotsford, like I lived with a professor and, and that like put it all into, into a perspective, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are, okay. We talked a little bit about Mark Driscoll, but let's do the opposite of the question I just asked, which is, <laughs> is there a figure or, people in the Christian world or whatever, that whenever you hear about it or interact with it, it gets your blood pumping and uh, angry. <laughs> You're trying to put me into like a... No, um, so I... I'm t- t- you can say me, that's fine. No, painting <laughs> with the broadest brush and uh, it's the whole neo-Calvinist like uh, circle that like really rose to prominence in my early 20s um, and and in BC like shaped the entire conversation of what theology is where everything is boiled down to atonement essentially and a mm-hmm. very particular vision of the atonement and that's it that's all the conversation is and everything stems from that or returns to that mm-hmm. um and it's all like kind of crypto fascist as well now that I like am where I am now um, and so that's one of the reasons I chose to do schooling uh, here in Manitoba when I was looking for somewhere to do my master's is because I didn't want to be involved in those same conversations. They had played out for me. Um, mm. I can only talk about why penal substitution isn't the be-all, end-all of theology for, for so much. Like, Right, yeah. Um, and, and, and because I, I see, and it may, maybe like this will be ironic when people listen to it, but like there is a, such a severe lack of like grace and empathy from, it's a lot of like what we'd call debate bros now. And, <laughs> and like... It's like gym rats, but like theology rats. Yeah, yeah. And they just want to like uh, beat people over the head with their particular logical, like hyper-logical framework. Um, yeah. And yeah, but um, most Orthodox people, when they interact with another Christian that is not Orthodox, who is thoughtful and is thought through their faith and practices their faith, really can't understand why that person just doesn't become Orthodox, <laughs> right? It's just this sort of like, I don't know what it is. Just people are like, why, why aren't you like me? Um, so you are somebody who's thoughtful and you've thought about your faith and you practice your faith and you, you, you've, you're well-read in terms of Christian theology and, and Christian history. Uh, why, why aren't you Orthodox Christian? 
I think first of all, I want to address the the first thing where I think one of the largest parts of like becoming a human in this world is like a fully like uh, fully realized human in this world is like realizing that other people don't have to be me to be res- to be like respected or respectable, um, and and realizing that. Um, that, that I'm only one facet and, and perspective and, and thought process and, and lived out experience of the ex, like expansive mystery that is uh, Christ, right? It would be, I, I think it would be a um, tragedy if it was all distilled down into a singular like vision of what a person is. Um, but instead, we, we can, the fact that we can look out to a variety of practices and, and peoples uh, in, in day-to-day reality enacting Christ in, in a multitude of ways is, is uh, inspiring and, and incredible and humbling. Um, why I'm not Orthodox is because it's two reasons. Uh, one is theologically... Like, and this is like a methodological thing. Um, I do like playing around. I like, I like the freedom to play around in my theology and to figure things out. And I may not stay in that, like whatever, like route I go down, I might not stay there very long. I might figure out that it's fruitless, but I want to figure that out. And I, and I want to like play with that a bit. Um, and, um, and I don't get the sense that I could do that uh, the way I do now. You could um, only do it behind closed doors. Basically. Yeah. You couldn't do it in a, in a public way. Yeah. Um, and, and then the second one is um, the like uh, exclusivity of the communion. Like the closed communion mm-hmm. is really hard for me on a practical level mm-hmm. uh, where that's just ecclesiologically not where I'm at. Yeah. Right. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about that? So, um, obviously, so for those listeners that don't know, the Orthodox Church, when it comes to communion, practices, quote unquote, closed communion, which means that communion is reserved for those members who, uh, who are initiated into the church through baptism and chrismation, um, and then are actually prepared through whatever local practices or whatever fasting or whatever they have to do to sort of receive the Eucharist. So, uh, so, you know, if you go to any random Orthodox Church on any given Sunday, there's going to be a number of people, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, that don't actually come up to receive the Eucharist, only those select few. Um, whereas some other churches practice the quote-unquote open communion, which means that, the, uh, and, and this is practiced kind of on a spectrum of what it mm-hmm. means to come to the table. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, everyone is, with cert- some. sometimes there are caveats, but everyone is invited to come up and, and receive the, the Eucharist. And it sounds like that's sort of the, the side that you would land mm-hmm. on there. Um, could you talk a bit about why and and what the problems you would see with closed communion? Um, or like, what does communion mean yeah, for yeah. you in terms so, of the Christian community? Uh, I don't want to, I, I feel <laughs> this is what becomes of me now that I've been a pastor for three years. I, I, I never want to overstep. Um, 
and I feel unprepared. Um, but I'll say this, that mm. it's really strange to read. I've been reading Being as Communion by Zazulus. And it's strange to read his foreword where he says that he intends this book for everyone, like, and particularly the Western audience, so that A, they stop exoticizing or Orthodox theology, and B, so that we can start building towards a synthesis. And that seems disingenuous to me when you don't recognize, like, you wouldn't recognize other baptized Christians in your communion, especially since this book is, is a Eucharistic ontology, mm-hmm. right? Where, like, how can you simultaneously, like, recognize that, like, I, as a Christian, am, like, ontologically sourced in the future through the Eucharist, like, in God, but just not allowed in yours, feels uh weird to me and those aren't gymnastics i want to do mm-hmm. um so that's that's the first thing um and and the second is i have heard stories of people who were in a sunday for the first time ever in a church and they didn't know what they were doing and they went up and took that communion and and had an encounter with christ uh, that 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 was like it, it fell together for them that this was like something that they want to be a part of in in and I never want to like say no to that opportunity for Jesus to like show up to people because mm. mm-hmm. um, I yeah it's not mine to like guard yeah um, I want to change gears here a little bit unless you want to add <laughs> okay. unless you want to add anything more to the uh, no the yeah, I just hope I was uh, uh, represented. Like, I don't know. I hope that in my first uh, account accounting of my my reason, uh, I, I wasn't like disparaging. Hey, it sounded great to me. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, you've changed my mind. <laughs> okay, here we go. So we, we got five minutes left, four and a half minutes left okay. in a public conversation. Right. So I do want to mention to the audience that every single interview that I do, the first half is public. So if you're not a patron, you're only receiving half a show. So me and Josh and me and all my guests continue to talk for another 45 minutes after the public side is done. So if you want to get access to the entire backlog of season one, which is 30 plus episodes, 30 plus interviews, um, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash pryingpriest or pryingpriest.com slash support and you can become a patron and then that supports the show, which we don't have ads on the show. So it supports the show and lets me continue to make these interviews. Um, And before we actually finish the public side, I want to ask one more fun question, but I also want to tease what we're going to talk about in the private podcast. And I know that you did your uh, thesis on something like trauma in the presence of God. Am I remembering that correctly? That's a good summary of it. Yeah. Right. Trauma in the presence of God. And let me see if I can kind of remember exactly. Uh, So trauma in the presence of God, and it's really exploring what it means that God can be present or maybe not present in certain moments of our life um, and kind Mm of um, exploring what it means that God is, is present. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, even in the darkest moments of human life. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, great. So we're going to talk, you know, about that thesis because that's very fascinating, right? We, we, uh, for those that don't know, Jesus, when dying on the cross, says, "My God, my God, why have you mm-hmm. abandoned me?" Right? There's this God; he's forsaken by God on the cross. So, yeah, I think that'll be a fun discussion. But before we end, I want to do a fun question here. Is there ever a time in your life where you've had a very 
weird or uncomfortable religious experience? So going to like... Fun question. (laughs) Very fun question. (laughs) Going to like a church and they're doing like a weird thing or like somebody on the street comes up to you or, 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 or maybe you were the one who was like, as I know of people who have been um, part of mission trips and they were asked to go and preach on the street to somebody, even though they were sort of really uncomfortable doing that. Um, and hearing them recount those stories is quite fun, but uh, well, it's fun for me. Um, <laughs> so I'll throw it over to you, Josh. I guess on one hand, if I were to answer for you, because <laughs> um, you've been to Orthodox services. Oh, okay. This is great. This is yeah. great. Actually, I have something now. So as someone who like, I want to think thoroughly through things. I want my actions to line up with my ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And I also like want to go into different situations, just situations that are different from my own and be respectful. So I'm at a service that Yuri is leading. Um, and I think it was for your like adults group, like your Tekla group. I think yeah. that's why I was there. Yeah. And um, I'm like, okay, I know I can't do communion. I know these other things I can't do. I'm going to sit here and just like take it in. And then uh, he starts walking down the aisle with, with an incredibly ornate, beautiful Bible. This is Father Greg, probably. Okay. Yeah. And, but you were next to him. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And people are leaning forward and kissing the Bible. And I'm like, my brain is like going like overdrive trying to figure out two different (laughs) things of like, A, would I be able to do this? And B, should I do this? Like, I don't know the theology around this. What does it symbolize for me to kiss this book? What is going on here? And, and uh, the father approaches and he just smiles at me and brings the book forward. And I stop thinking and I just kiss it. Yeah. And I think uh, that is the most beautiful, um, that is what's at the heart of like what should be like these sacraments and these things is that like uh, that invitation into the unknown that I don't have to have it figured out. I don't need all my ducks in the road to participate uh, in this thing. Uh, that, that was like, and it was, it's funny to me and, and beautiful. Yeah. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?